Orbital Gardens, this is Mission Control. We are confirming acquisition of your signal. You are live in 5, 4, 3, 2... Hello and welcome to episode 22 of Gardeners of the Galaxy, the podcast for all of the sentient beings in the universe who have a passion for plants. I am Emma the Space Gardener and I will be your host as we explore gardening on Earth and beyond. It's 30 years since Dr Helen Sharman blasted off on her Project Juno mission, becoming both the first British citizen in space and the first woman to visit the Mir space station. In this episode, I'm going to explore how Helen came to be chosen for the mission, the gardening experiments she carried out on Mir, and what happened to the space-flown pansy seeds she brought back for British schoolchildren to grow. First, though, I've got some space news to recap, and I'll be answering another question about space plants in the new FAQ section. NASA's Ingenuity helicopter continues to fly high on Mars. It recently completed its fifth flight on the Red Planet and its first one-way journey. It travelled from Wright Brothers Field to an airfield 129 metres to the south, then it climbed to an altitude record of 10 metres and took high-resolution colour photographs of its new neighbourhood before touching down. NASA's OSIRIS-REx spacecraft has started its journey home from asteroid Bennu with its precious cargo of rock samples. OSIRIS-REx arrived at Bennu in 2018 and spent two years flying around the asteroid before collecting samples from the surface last year. NASA estimates it has captured between 200 and 400 grams of asteroid material but won't know for sure until the sample capsule touches down in the Utah desert in two years' time. NASA and Axiom Space have confirmed that the first private astronaut mission to the International Space Station will take place next year. Axiom Mission 1, AX-1, will launch from Kennedy Space Center in a SpaceX Crew Dragon spacecraft. The Axiom astronauts will spend eight days on the ISS, with NASA and Axiom mission planners coordinating their activities. The proposed crew members will be reviewed by NASA and will have to undergo NASA medical qualification testing before being approved for the flight. It's not clear yet what activities they will participate in on the ISS. AX-1 is not to be confused with Inspiration-4, which will be the first all-civilian space mission and is being funded by Jared Isaacman. Three crew members have been chosen to accompany him into space, including Dr. Sean Proctor, who many of you will know as an analogue astronaut from high seas. This mission will also launch from Kennedy Space Center in Crew Dragon, but rather than heading to the ISS, it will spend several days in low Earth orbit. Inspiration is currently scheduled for launch in September 2021. have a favourite microgreen? That's the question that astrobotanist Dr Richard Barker of the Gilroy Lab is asking in his latest citizen science research project. Maybe you love pea shoots or the fantastic flavour of baby basil, or perhaps you prefer the punch of Mitsuna or mustard seedlings. If you want to participate in the project all you need to do is fill in a quick form, although you will need to create a login before you can enter data. If you want to upload a picture of your favourite crop you can do that too. I'll put the link to that in the show notes for you. I'm Emma the Space Gardener, And you're listening to Gardeners of the Galaxy. In the last episode, I explained that I'd asked my Facebook friends for their questions on space plants to start putting together an FAQ. This time, the question comes from Julia Maddock, who asks, why we grow space plants? That's an exciting question. One of the main reasons we've taken plants into space so far is scientific research. Like us, plants evolved on a planet with gravity and have never experienced life without it. 
Taking plants into microgravity can tell us a lot about their biology and experiments that would be difficult or impossible to perform on Earth. And the results can be used to help us grow plants better on Earth and understand how they might be affected by stresses such as climate change. Now, we all know how important it is for us to eat enough fruits and vegetables. As it stands, pretty much every bite of food an astronaut eats has to be exported from Earth. That's fine when you're in low Earth orbit or for a short trip to the Moon, but it becomes problematic when you want to head out into deep space. NASA has been working very hard on improving the astronaut diet, but even with state-of-the-art preservation techniques, packaged food degrades and loses its nutrient content over time. One of the driving forces behind developing the veggie growing system was to see whether growing plants in space can provide astronauts with vitamins that would otherwise be missing from their diet. Ultimately, if we want to live in deep space, then we need to be able to grow crops there. It's too slow and expensive to export them all from Earth. So, science and food, what else is there? Well, at the moment, spaceships and space stations rely on technology for their life support systems. There are machines that remove carbon dioxide from the air and replace the oxygen, systems that clean the water and recycle it for drinking, and waste products get dumped or brought back to Earth for disposal. Here on Earth, our environment does those things for us. Can we use plants for life support systems in space? There has been a lot of research into these circular life support systems, and it is ongoing. Astronauts in the future may well rely on extraterrestrial plants to keep them alive. And last, but by no means least, there are psychological benefits of having plants around. There has been a massive uptick in people buying houseplants during the pandemic, when they were indoors and couldn't get out into nature. We evolved in ecosystems filled with plants and animals, and we miss them when we're stuck inside. That's particularly true for astronauts who are trapped inside a highly technical environment and can't even crack a window, let alone head outside. Their favourite pastime is looking out of the window at planet Earth, but even that view will be lost when we travel to Mars. Anecdotal evidence from astronauts shows that they love working with plant experiments and seeing living things growing in their environment. NASA's Joya Massa, who we heard from in episode 10, is part of a team investigating the psychological benefits of the veggie growing system. They're asking astronaut gardeners questions such as, Was gardening engaging, demanding or meaningful? Did it impact the passage of time, performance of mission tasks or relationships with crew members? Did gardening enhance their connection to Earth, desire to harvest or consume the plants, or food consumption in general? And how effective was gardening as a source of sensory stimulation for sight, touch, smell and taste? Astronauts who get to eat the veggies also complete a sensory assessment, rating its flavour, colour, appearance, aroma, texture and taste. The idea is to assess whether it's worth the time and effort involved to supplement pre-packaged space food. So far, seven astronauts have completed the survey. Joya is hoping to survey another 17 before the study is complete. So, why do we grow plants in space? For the same reasons we grow them on Earth. To learn more about them, to eat them, for their ability to improve our air and clean our water, and because we love them. Thanks, Julia, for asking such a great question. If you've got a question about space plants, then I'm here to help. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Orbital Gardens. Gardeners of the Galaxy has its own Facebook page. And you can email your questions to earth at spacebotany.uk. And now let's jump in the time machine and head back to the Britain of 30 years ago, where, rather unexpectedly, the first British astronaut is ready for launch. In 1993... 
I was studying for a degree in physics with astrophysics. That was unusual enough at the time that I spoke briefly to a reporter about it, and she asked me whether I intended to become an astronaut. I thought it was a ridiculous question. My chances of becoming an astronaut had always been practically nil. British people don't go into space. In fact, two Brits had been into space by the time I was asked that question. Michael Fole, born in Lincolnshire, first launched on Space Shuttle Atlantis in March 1992. He flew with NASA, having dual UK-US citizenship. But the first Brit in space was, unusually, a woman. When Dr Helen Sharman's Project Juno mission launched on the 18th of May 1991, she became both the first British astronaut and the first woman to visit the Mir space station. Having spent much of the 1990s speaking about her experiences, Helen then disappeared from public life and was largely forgotten. Her story wasn't unearthed until Tim Peake became the UK's first official astronaut in 2015. So why was Helen Sharman practically written out of space history? And why was it so long between Britain's first astronaut and the second? In 1962, Britain became only the third nation to successfully launch a satellite into space. That was Ariel 1. Yet after being at the forefront of space technology, the UK languished in the doldrums. In 1985, squadron leader Nigel Wood trained with NASA to be a payload specialist, with a planned mission in June 1986, but that was cancelled after the Challenger disaster. And then Margaret Thatcher's Conservative government decided not to participate in Space Station Freedom, which would become the International Space Station. Nor would they participate in ESA's human spaceflight programme. The government effectively torpedoed any hope of a UK human spaceflight programme by saying that they would not invest in one. The UK view was that human spaceflight was an unaffordable luxury. That didn't change until 2008, when ESA selected Tim Peake for their astronaut programme, but he wasn't assigned a space mission until the UK government stumped up the funding for it. So how did Project Juno get off the ground? The idea behind Project Juno was that it would be a joint UK-Soviet space mission, shoring up international relations as the Cold War came to an end. A marketing executive picked the mission name. Juno was the Roman goddess who watched over women and marriage, and the mission was seen as a marriage of East and West. The astronaut recruitment strategy was unusual. Helen Sharman was one of 13,000 people who responded to a radio advert saying, Astronaut wanted, no experience necessary. At the time, Sharman worked as a research chemist for the confectionery company Mars, which inevitably led to jokes about the girl from Mars going into space. The application process was run a little bit like a reality TV show, before such things really existed. In the full glare of the press, the candidates were gradually whittled down until Helen Sharman and Major Tim Mace were chosen as the final two and sent to Russia for 18 months of intensive cosmonaut training. In the end, Sharman was picked for the mission. In December 1989, famous scientist Heinz Wolf wrote a letter to New Scientist magazine, responding to their suggestion that Project Juno was merely a publicity stunt. At the time, he was the chairman of the European Space Agency's Microgravity Advisory Committee and in a good position to understand the scientific opportunities the mission offered. He noted that when Juno issued a very informal call for experiments, more experiments were submitted by the British scientific community in the middle of the summer holidays than ESA attracts from the whole of Europe by a formal call. There was certainly no shortage of scientists seeking the opportunity. Ultimately, 26 experiments were chosen for Project Juno. One of those was a mycological experiment proposed by Dr David Moore exploring the role gravity plays in fungal development. 
However, there was a fly in the ointment. With the UK government refusing to fund the mission, Project Juno was pitched to UK companies as a commercial opportunity. It failed to attract enough sponsors and would have been cancelled entirely. However, a last-minute intervention saw the Russians pick up the tab. The UK science got bumped from the mission, and Sharman spent most of her eight days in space working on Russian experiments. On the 18th of May 1991, Helen Sharman blasted off on Soyuz TM-12. There's a lovely story in Helen's autobiography, Seize the Moment. Before the launch, the first man to walk in space, Alexei Leonov, gave her a handful of grass, saying, I pick this for you. Take it with you into the space station. There's nothing much to smell up there, and this will remind you of home. When Helen took the grass and rubbed it lightly between her fingers, it gave off a pleasant, sweet herbal aroma. She later found out that it was a fragrant plant called polin, which grows all over the Kazakh steppes and is a kind of wormwood or absinthe. Seize the Moment also explains that while she was on Mir, Helen performed a range of experiments. These included the crystallisation of luciferase, the effect of weightlessness on the human body, effective radiation and vacuum on ceramic films, the air quality on board, and some Earth observation data collection. One of the British activities she was able to do was to speak to UK schoolchildren via amateur radio. Harrogate Ladies College in the north of England was chosen to coordinate the amateur radio link as it was already training students to take the radio amateurs examination. By 1991, 30 girls at the school had achieved their transmitting licences and they had a fully equipped amateur radio station. Richard Horton from the school travelled to Moscow to deliver amateur radio licences to Helen and her backup Tim Mace so that they could legally broadcast from Mir. While he was there, he also handed over 250,000 pansy seeds to be exposed to the space environment. The seeds came from seed company Sutton Seeds. The idea was that Helen would take half of the seeds into space with her and the rest would stay on Earth as a control. Once the space-blown seeds were back on Earth, they would be sent out to UK schoolchildren to grow and see whether there was any difference to the plants grown from control seeds. The original plan was that the project would use tomato seeds, but that ran into problems because there are more legal controls on crop seeds. So the chosen variety ended up being Pansy Pad Paraja, one of Sutton's new introductions for 1992. It was a trendy orange-coloured variety, named after an orange jewel from Sri Lanka. So Helen Julie carried 125,000 pansy seeds to Mir and left them in the Kavantu airlock, the portion of the station least shielded from cosmic radiation. The seeds spent six months in space and returned on Soyuz TM-12 on the 10th of October 1991 after 188 days in space. News reports show that schoolchildren around the UK did indeed get involved in growing the seeds. Helen later said that there was a small but significant difference in the average number of leaves on the plants. The space seeds grew with fewer leaves than the earth seeds. Sadly, there don't seem to be many records and certainly no scientific results from that experiment. A stroll through the British newspaper archive unearthed a somewhat bizarre story about a missing briefcase containing pansy seeds from outer space. Mr Andrew Swanston was on his way to give a talk to the northwest branch of the Aerophilatelics Association, and apparently Aerophilately is the branch of philately that specialises in the study of airmail. He was carrying with him all kinds of material, including letters and signed photographs from Miss Sharman, as well as his precious pansy seeds. He said his intention was to plant a few of the seeds and save the rest for posterity. Sadly, he accidentally left his briefcase on the car roof, and of course it wasn't there when he reached his destination. I wonder whether he ever got it back. Helen's active gardening experiments included growing some wheat seedlings, researching the possibility of growing food in space. 
By the time she set up the experiment, the seedlings had been weightless and in the dark for two days, so their roots and shoots were all over the place. Helen put them by a light, and when she went back four hours later to water them, all the shoots were growing towards the light, while the roots remained chaotic. Helen also had other seeds that she grew in a non-uniform magnetic field, placing magnets around them at certain positions. She started growing seeds in water, then later halted the growth in a fixating medium, recording how long they had been growing, and what the orientation of their magnetic field had been. And she took some potato roots up to the station, trying to learn about their early growth phases. Potatoes were later grown from the tissue cultures she brought back. And finally, the crew took up a tiny lemon tree, so small as to be almost a bonsai. The idea of this was to see if higher plants could be kept alive in space. This will be important in the future if we want to be self-sufficient in space on a long journey to Mars or one of the other planets. Producing fruit or flowers inside a spacecraft is still a largely unknown quantity. Helen stayed eight days in space and returned to Earth in Soyuz TM-11 on the 26th of May 1991. Why did she ultimately disappear from public life? She didn't want to be a celebrity, especially as a sexist British press focused more on her clothes than the science. One newspaper even compared her with sci-fi sex siren Barbarella, scolding her for not wearing enough makeup or mirror. As she summed it up, fame was the downside of space. Despite the fact that the press at the time was sexist and derogatory, complaining that the mission was a vanity project and that Helen was merely a space tourist, the public interest in Project Juno proved that the British people have an appetite for space travel. They would have to wait 24 years to see another British astronaut. And what a difference those years made. Tim Peake's Principia mission suffered none of the snide remarks, captured the public's imagination and propelled Tim Peake to the status of national treasure. Fingers crossed that he gets his second mission in space and that the UK doesn't have to wait another 24 years for its next astronaut. That's it for this episode. You'll find the show notes on my website, theunconventionalgardener.com, which is also home to a virtual tip jar for those of you who would like to support the show. If you want to join the fan club, you can sign up via patreon.com forward slash gardeners of the galaxy to access extended episodes and bonus content. And a big Gardeners of the Galaxy thank you to Brian Koza, who has done just that. I'd love to hear your comments on the show. You can comment on the Podbean homepage, on my website, on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram, or email me, and the address for that is earth at spacebotany.uk. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with episode 23. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Portal Gardens, this is Mission Control, confirming termination of your signal. We've heard from Mark Watney, and he'd love to visit for dinner in the Space Garden. However, he does have a concern about the menu. Apparently, he's sick of potatoes. Mission Control out. <laughs>